Crime tip lines can be a gift and a curse. Every lead that comes in has to be chased down, whether it's from a real eyewitness or someone whose supposed tip came from a crystal ball. Yet when the tips start to line up too well, cops have to ask themselves, how would a random caller know where the bodies are buried? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Forty-eight-year-old Avril Whedon had a good thing going. She was renting out a room inside her Redding, California home for a bit of extra cash. Redding is far north, way upstate, heading toward Mount Shasta in Oregon. The Sacramento River cuts a path directly through town. It's not the surfer dudes and the selfie takers of Southern California. This is quite literally the Wild West. In early May 1985, Avril met a lodger who, he bore a similar look to that of Charlie Manson. You know, not that he's the dream guy you'd want to be compared to in any respects. Just saying. Robert Morey was 27 years old when he took up residence in Avril's house. He'd banged around Northern California for a time, you know, doing odd jobs, while mostly staying out of trouble with the law. He'd spent most of his life in and around Anderson, California, a straight shot about 10 miles south of Redding. Just after high school, Maury had enlisted in the Army. He seemed to like the regimented atmosphere and steady routine of it all. After many years of not going anywhere within the rank and file of the military, Maury found himself with a dishonorable discharge after being caught smoking weed one day. This is 1985, remember, long before pot was decriminalized in California. And of course, in 23 states, it's still illegal. Then, that same year, he met Avril and wound up becoming one of her tenants. And of course, this was like before Airbnb and that kind of thing. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> before Airbnb. Yes. <laughs> That's Catherine Law, by the way, my producer, a great asset Hi. to this show who you will hear chime in from time to time. And indeed, pre-Airbnb, people would more often take on borders to make a little extra money to put towards the mortgage. I remember my mom did it after she and my dad divorced. And thinking back on it, the amount of sketchy people filing in and out of our house, oh my God. But we didn't worry about people back then as we do today, I think. I mean, I didn't lose sleep at night with these borders in the house. My parents actually used to list our house in a book that was called Mennonite Your Way. My my mom is Mennonite and I was raised Mennonite. Oh, how fun. Uh-huh. And this book was like a printed out booklet that would go out to everyone who signed up for this program. And Mennonites are very frugal. So this was like you could go and stay with people who signed up in this book either for free or for a small fee to pay for like food and they would give you a meal and everything. And we would have people come stay with us from time to time. Did the ad say all the free shoe fly pie that you can possibly eat? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I I just thought everybody did this when they had an extra room in their house for extra mm -hmm. money. And 
you know, in this case, for the most part, Robert Morey didn't much bother anyone, especially Avril. Morey worked part-time landscaping jobs and even arranged flowers for a local flower shop. He stayed out of the way, paid his rent, and he and Avril even hung out occasionally. On the afternoon of May 23, 1985, just a few weeks after Maury has moved in, Avril's mother begins calling the house incessantly. Maury finally answers the phone, wanting to know what in the name of California raisins the caller wants. Avril's mom demands to know where her daughter is. She hasn't been able to get in touch with her daughter all day. And this is not typical. Maury replies that she's at the store and they end the call. That night, Avril's mom still hasn't heard from her daughter. She once again gets Maury on the phone after calling repeatedly. This time, he's angry, growling, quote, how in the hell am I supposed to know where she is, end quote. Days go by without a word from Avril Whedon. Friends and family know something is very wrong. It's unlike her not to get in touch with anyone. And if I can pop in again here, Phelps. Sure. You know, we hear this a lot on CTL. A friend, a family member, a neighbor, somebody you know vanishes. And the people around them don't just take this at face value. Oh, they they left town or something. They know. They get a feeling in their guts that something is very wrong. Catherine brings up an important point. Gut instinct. If you feel something is wrong, a loved one is in trouble, please, I implore you, act on it. Because you are more than likely right. Your gut is a powerful alarm bell. And if you're wrong, what's the actual harm? Right. There's no reason to not like raise the alarm bells. And if you're proven wrong, they're like, great, that's even better. No harm, no foul. I mean, you took the next step. You have your answer. But if you're right, well. Then time is of the essence. Exactly. The days Avril is missing soon turn into weeks. Word gets out with ads in local papers, flyers, postings at the supermarkets and liquor stores. You get the idea here. There was no internet at the time. So besides filing a missing persons report, this was all grassroots local stuff. Without a clue to go on, a program called Secret Witness gets involved. Secret Witness is a tip line, essentially, where a witness to a crime can call in anonymously and be paid cash for tips that ultimately pan out. The system is very strict about its anonymity clause. They're also separate from law enforcement. They rely on anonymity because, as you'll recall from Our Lady of the Dunes and other episodes, sometimes people aren't keen to come forward when they're afraid of the perpetrator. If it keeps tipsters safe and helps solve crimes, what could be the harm, right? This particular program, Secret Witness of Shasta County, is still up and running as a nonprofit. Their call to action, which explains the system very well, is see a crime. Call the line. I just wish it rhymed a little better. Uh, that's like an Eminem rhyme right there. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where you kind of, you're making up your own rhyme. <laughs> yeah. The offer in Avril's case is up to $250 for a tip leading to her whereabouts. Not a lot of money, but, you know, it might pay your um, boarding rent for the month, let's just say. Mm-hmm. 
Who knows? Maybe she's disappeared. Maybe she took off with some dude and just decided not to tell anyone. She's an adult, free to make her own decisions. Something tells me that since we're talking about her, that's not what happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is a true crime podcast, so we know this is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. While she's missing, Avril's brother pops over to the house to speak with Robert Morey, Avril's tenant. He asks Maury where he thinks his sister went off to, trying to glean any information Maury might have about his sister's whereabouts. But then, something strange happens. Maury starts telling conflicting stories, so the brother investigates a little and talks to other people. One dude, who is a frequent guest at Avril's house, tells the brother that the last time he saw Avril, she was driving away from the house sitting on the back of Maury's motorcycle. Everybody loves a bad boy. Yeah, I mean, I guess he had a little bit of a James Dean quality to him, Mm -hmm. if James Dean was a psychopath. (laughs) Reading detective Dave Mundy, assigned to the missing persons investigation, gets involved, and he develops a hunch. He calls Maury into the station for a sit-down, informal but also inquisitive. It's now June 3rd, 1985, two weeks since the last time anyone has seen Avril. Maury is, as Mundy later explains, relaxed and self-assured. He doesn't seem to be nervous or hiding anything. But still, Mundy puts it out there. Do you know where she is? Maury says he has no idea. The last time I saw her was on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. And this is that week she disappeared he's talking about. Maury says he cannot recall exactly which day. Mundy asks him to explain, because, you know, that's a little sketchy. Maury explains, quote, I drove her on my motorcycle to a telephone booth. And what he means is that it is just a place for her to hang out, not necessarily use the phone. And left her there. Then I went on to another location to score some weed. Went back to the phone booth, picked her up, and we drove back to the house. That feels real weird, Phelps. Like, who's like, I'm going to hang out at this phone booth all afternoon. Okay, no, I, I let me explain this a little bit. Maury doesn't want her to know who his dealer is. So it's like, you're going to hang out up here. I'm going to my, uh, my, de- my dealer will get that nervous. That makes more if, sense. If, if I'm bringing friends, uh, that right, makes more sense. Right, Got it. See, in my head, I just knew that. I just thought everybody realized that. <laughs> like, but why is she hanging out at the phone booth? What's happening? Maybe me assuming that said something about myself. <laughs> Your checkered past. Maybe. Maybe. From there, Maury insists he never saw her again. 16 more days go by. It's now June 19. Mundy and the Reading police have their thoughts about Robert Maury. He's a bit aloof. He's known around town as trouble, a druggy type. But truly, what do they have to tie him to Avril's disappearance? Absolutely zip. Then on June 19th, a guy calls into that secret witness hotline. Before giving any information, he asks the operator this question. How much money will I receive if I give the location of Avril Whedon's body? Yikes. I mean... We've said it before. Some people will do anything for money. You you know, you're absolutely right about that. Some people will do anything for 10 bucks or in this case, 250 bucks. My nephew recently did something for a couple dollars, which I think is very funny. 
He is 14. He just started going by his choice to the military high school in the area. Uh, shout out, Marmion. And apparently at school, because it's a military school, you can like get a haircut for 10 bucks. Well, he took, you know, my sister gave him 10 bucks to go get a haircut at school. And he told his friends he was going to get a haircut that day. And they dared him to buzz his hair off. Well, obviously seeing a little entrepreneurial angle here. He's like, how much will you bet me? So they bet him 20 bucks that he would shave his hair off. But so he obviously used my sister's $10 to get the haircut. And then he pocketed the $20. And now he's got a shaved head. And now he's got a shaved head. And he looks absolutely nuts, right? He, he looks great. He looks great. He's like a teenage boy. You know, it works. It's a Luke. <laughs> okay. There are some huge twists coming in this case you likely will not see coming. We'll get to those right after we take a quick break. Okay, so a male caller wants to know how much cash he will be paid for giving up the location of missing Redding, California resident Avril Whedon's body. Says a lot about this caller, whoever they are. You know where a body is and you won't give it up unless you get paid? That makes you a special kind of scumbag, if nothing more, in my book. Avril has been missing for just over three weeks by this point. The operator is so terribly shaken by that call. She breaks protocol a bit and speaks to police about it. And they begin monitoring the tip line. Because they realize this caller may have either killed Avril or know who did. So, you know, you think that's absolutely true, but also like it could be someone who found her body, say, while they were walking in the woods. And at first I'm thinking they'd have to know her to know that that's the body of Avril Whedon, which is unlikely but not impossible in a town of 65,000 people in 1985. But... You know, it could also be someone who found her body after seeing missing posters. Either way, we're still talking about a super creep. A hunter, a trail walker, someone out there right. just passing by. Walking a dog. I'm liking the way you're thinking there. I'm, I'm liking it. You're thinking on your feet and you're thinking out of the box, which I like. Because my mind just goes right to a criminal. Mm -hmm. In a brilliant, fast-thinking move, though, during that first call into the tip line, the operator explained to the caller that she'd have to check with her boss about the amount of money she could get him for the tip, which is a clever way to make sure the person calls back. By August 8th, nearly two months later, without another call into the tip line about Avril Whedon, the operator has been authorized to tell any caller phoning in about Avril that the nonprofit is prepared to pay a reward of, quote, hundreds of dollars if the tip pans out. On August 8, the same guy calls back. The operator recognizes his voice. He asks again about the amount of money. That's the most important thing to him, it seems, the money. She tells him they can pay him a lot of money. I'm crossing my fingers he falls for this. Well, this caller is not the sharpest tool in the shed. But look, he's obviously a guy who maybe just drives around searching for bodies, hoping to make some extra cash. Mm-hmm. And he actually has the goods to back it up. He tells the operator that Avril's body is in a wooded area located a few meters off a trail behind an auto body shop right there in Reading. 
The caller is memorable, the operator recalls, because after all, he curiously used the term meters for distance, not yards or feet. Hmm, interesting. And then during the call, he goes on, quote, if I receive my reward money in a timely manner after you find her, I will tell you who killed her. And I know of six unsolved murders in Shasta County. I can give you information to solve two of those as well. So I'm not sure we're talking about a hunter here or a trail walker. Right. That like takes all that stuff off the table. And this could be an actual tipster who's scared and wants to stay anonymous. Like he knows the person who is the killer. But then. Well, then you're talking about uh, somebody who knows that his friend is a serial killer and he hasn't said anything. Completely. Completely. Like at least you're accessory to a crime in that situation. But I should say, this is how that tip line is supposed to work, right? Right. You're not supposed to become the target of an investigation for calling in. And the police are generally not involved within the context of this tip line. Maybe this caller knew a dude at a bar, drank with him, and the dude got drunk and spilled his guts. Which, as we know, actually truly happens very often because murderers just like love bragging. Murders are solved this way all the time. Someone getting blitzed and opening his mouth. A lot more than people would think this happens. There's a certain type of killer who has a hard time keeping their mouth shut about what they've done. I mean, we see this time and again with serial killers who just want to keep talking and talking about all the people they've murdered. Totally. Or like a relative of the killer who's seen enough to know who it is. Like we hear about, oh, he came home after being gone that night and he had blood on his clothes. And the next day there was a murder in the news. Like, you know, people see things. After getting the tip, police conduct a search. Lo and behold, they find Avril's severely decomposed body exactly where it was predicted to be. It's covered with an old carpet and cardboard. Again, this is no Einstein killer here. This seems sloppy and hasty. Her hyoid bone has been fractured. That's the bone in your throat that is often broken when strangulation occurs. And there's blunt force trauma to her skull. The coroner concludes she has been strangled and beaten to death. Over the course of the next several days, four additional calls come into the tip line from this same caller. By August 12th, the caller is now prepared to offer up a suspect. And I quote, the person who lives with Whedon is responsible for her death, end quote. Okay, so this person is pointing to Robert Morey. Apparently so. Apparently, the caller is saying Robert Morey killed Avril Whedon. But we don't know really at this point if it's someone else who's lived with her. Yeah. She's had borders come and go. So Right. And responsible for her death could mean an accident. Yeah. He accidentally kind of hit her with a hammer and then jumped on top of her and strangled <laughs> her. Jesus. By accident. Yeah. That, you know, that happens. <laughs> After it is explained to the caller that Reading police are now involved, he refuses to speak with Detective Dave Mundy. But he's developed enough of a rapport with the operator that he says he'll call back and answer questions from the detective, but only through her. On August 15, the mystery caller rings the operator again. He says a man named Robert, or Bob, is the killer. Again, pointing a finger at the man who rented a room from Avril. 
And like much more specifically, like he is the killer and giving a name. Yep. Yeah. Robert, he doesn't say Maury, but he's talking about Robert Maury. The caller says he knows this because he was sort of with Bob when Bob became very angry because Avril Whedon, who had been buying drugs from him, failed to pay a drug debt. So according to the caller, Bob strangled Avril with a clothesline he grabbed from her backyard. And I love that this caller says, I was sort of with him. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of. You know, I sort of was with him because I don't want to be involved in this is what he's saying. On accident. Yeah. Then the caller says that Bob also cracked Avril over the head with a six to eight inch rock to make sure she was dead. The caller insists he had nothing to do with the murder, but gives the impression that he was an eyewitness to it, describing details about the crime scene only someone there could have known. He continues to use the term meters to describe distance. The caller instructs the operator to have police look in Avril's backyard. It's there, meaning the clothesline. Before hanging up, the caller threatens that if he doesn't get his reward money soon, I'll never call you again. Remember, there are two more murders at stake here. Yeah. Police check on that rope and find it in Avril's backyard. So here's a question. How do you go about getting reward money to someone if they're anonymous? So it's 1985. They can't exactly set up a Venmo. You're jumping a little bit ahead there. Okay. Uh, We're going to get to that later on in the episode. And it's, you know, it's as sketchy as maybe you're thinking it might be. Meanwhile, police decide they are going to begin to put pressure on Robert Morey. Or, you know what? I think at this point, why don't we just go ahead and call him Bob from here on We should have done that a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) That September, while questioning him, cops again ask Bob about the last time he saw Avril. He tells them the same story of giving her a ride on his motorcycle to buy drugs, dropping her off at the house, never seeing her again. So not exactly enough to make an arrest. Not yet. More months go by. They wait, I would reckon, to give Bob time to stew a bit. But they also start watching Bob. That November, he actually calls one of the detectives working on Avril's case. Why? To tell them he knows who murdered Avril and that he will give them all the details about what happened if they give him immunity. Wait, so he calls police directly, admitting to witnessing the murder? Yeah. He calls in and he says, you know, I'll give you all the details about what happened if I get immunity. That's nuts. Meaning he's had some part in this or he was there or whatever, but he wants everything taken off the table in order to give them the details. And get this bullshit. He also wants consideration for another crime he was just recently busted for. Possession of stolen property in an unrelated case. The detective says he'll look into it. He then brings Detective Mundy back in, and Mundy calls Bob. Bob says he'll talk, but only if he is offered immunity. Mundy responds that only a DA, a district attorney, can offer immunity. The next day, Mundy and the district attorney meet Bob at his place of residence. Avril's house. You got it. They sit down and interview him. Bob suddenly has a lot more to say. It was his nephew's birthday. He went out to visit him, and when he came home, 
a drug dealer he knew was strangling Avril with a piece of rope in the living room. He saw this upon walking in. There was a second man there in the house as well, and Bob Morey says this guy had a gun and pointed it at him. The drug dealer then tied Avril's hands behind her back with the rope. The dope dealer and the gun guy then pick Avril up and place her in the back of her own truck. They all then drove into the woods and dumped her body. Before leaving, the dealer smashed a rock on her head to make sure she was dead. So this is just the first story Bob tells police. Weeks later, they go back to Bob and ask him to tell the story again. You see, good cops get a suspect to tell a story at different times to gauge any changes in the story. Memory works differently than imagination. We all know that. Well, in the second telling, Bob says he was forced at gunpoint to hit Avril over the head with the rock. While Bob is talking, both the DA and Mundy make note of something else that's interesting. Bob is using the term meters instead of yards. They look at each other and ask him, point blank, are you the anonymous tipster? Bob denies it. Now an investigation into Avril Whedon's murder is focused specifically on Bob Morey. They don't even think there are any others involved. But the story and the list of missing and murdered women doesn't end there. We'll be right back. The investigation, for a reason I cannot fathom, stalls for nearly two years. What? Bob Morey had still not been arrested for the murder of Avril Whedon. Why? I have no answer for that. Evidence, perhaps? It is, after all, the mid-80s. What they have right now is basically a changing story by Bob Morey and a body, but no other evidence to corroborate his guilt. On June 20, 1987, Bob Morey is out riding around on his motorcycle, and he meets a woman who we'll call Suzanne not her real name. Suzanne asks Bob for a ride to a friend's house. He tells her to hop on the back of his motorcycle, but Bob instead drives Suzanne into the woods and after grabbing her and hustling her to the ground, he places a rope around her neck. He then tells her to take off all her clothes. He tightens the slip knot on the rope as if he's done this before. And when she hesitates, he tells her to hurry it up. She's forced to remove her clothes, lie down, and Bob Morey brutally rapes her. He then drives her home and drops her off. Great guy. Two days later, a woman named Dawn Berryhill is out and about, and she's apartment hunting. Bob knows Dawn from around town. He offers her a ride on his bike, takes her to see a few apartments. Several witnesses see her get on Bob's motorcycle. But no one sees 20-year-old Dawn again after that day. She goes missing. Just a few days after that, another woman, 30-year-old Belinda Jo Stark, leaves her apartment and meets up with Bob. He gives her a ride on his bike. Nobody sees Belinda again either. He's on a streak. Yeah, there's a common thread here. That motorcycle, giving girls rides on that motorcycle. And that they never come back from. 
But here's where it gets even more interesting. After a long dry spell in the summer of 1987, that secret witness call-in hotline starts to receive calls from the meters, not yards guy again, who we know now is Bob Morey. Bob is now talking about giving up the locations of not only Stark and Barry Hill's bodies, but other women too. Beyond that, Bob is inserting himself into the entire investigation. He actually walks into the sheriff's office and, in person, tells them where they can find Belinda Joe Stark's purse. An investigator suggests to Bob that if he knows where it is, why don't the two of them go out to the location and find the purse together? So they drive out to the site. Bob points to a location, and there it is, Belinda's purse. What a lucky guess, Phelps. Yeah, he's a smart guy, Bob. He's some kind of guy. So he's killing women, presumably. Bob is out there killing women, dumping them in the woods, and then calling and telling the police on himself? It just, it's, it, what? Yeah. I mean, he has a plan, obviously, in his head. In his head, yeah. Right. He's a sociopath, and he believes his own plan in his head, and he believes that it's going to work for him and that he's going to be paid to murder all these women. That's what he believes. Right. Like, I kind of get the anonymous tip line thing, but when you're, like, walking into the police station being like, come with me. Let me show you where the evidence is. Well, with sociopaths, some of them, there's this ring the bell first kind of thing. If mm -hmm. I ring the bell first, before they get to it, I control the narrative. Mm -hmm. But here's what happens next. Bob once again calls back into the tip line. He says he will give up the locations of bodies for 500 bucks, placed in an envelope, and left at a location he chooses. He claims it is the woman's boyfriends in these new cases who are responsible. That's a lot of murder and boyfriends. Right. He's, what he's saying is there's, you know, this is a lot of murderers running around that time. Yeah. Yeah. So detectives agree. Okay, we'll put $500 in an envelope and drop it where you say. And you know what, Bob? We won't put a stake out there either. We promise. Bob says he will place the information about the killers in an envelope since they had already managed to get the locations out of him on the phone. They do the drop. The envelope Bob leaves is empty. He really got him now. Bob burns him. He burns the cops for $500. I love it. <laughs> Except that based on the information Bob gave them about the location of the bodies, they find scattered remains all over a wooded area of town. The same location, in fact, where Bob had raped Suzanne. He had told them the body in those woods, those scattered remains, is that of a woman named Olston. Yet the body is identified as Belinda Stark, who had been beaten to death and raped, the coroner determines. Apparently, Bob didn't think they could identify the remains. Clothing, hair samples, dental records, tattoos, mole scars. There are so many ways to identify a body. What a dingus. What's a dingus? A dingus is a stupid person, Phelps. Bob. <laughs> a dingus is a Bob Murray. It's a Bob Murray. E equals MC squared <laughs> equals you're a fucking idiot, Bob. Yeah. Still, they don't arrest Bob just yet. How could they not arrest him? I'm losing my mind. It's 1985. I, you know, I'm going to use that as an excuse as long as I can in this episode. It's 1985. You know? It's 1985. Murderers on the loose everywhere. 
and no one's being arrested. Nope. So have at it. After making a profit off of one body, Bob keeps calling and demanding money for more bodies. They wind up giving him more money for more body locations. Barry Hill's body is found about three-tenths of a mile from Stark's body under an old mattress, a scarf wrapped around her neck. Bob gets pissed at the secret witness program. He's in a rage that they supposedly gave him up to the police and a long drama ensues. Bob has been paid at this point about $2,500 cash for information about the location of bodies. Bodies he himself had dumped after a series of murders he committed. By November 6, 1987, enough is enough. They arrest Bob on several charges, three counts of murder, two counts of rape. Based on the information Bob had given them, one of those rape charges is against a deceased victim. Yikes. So Bob's into necrophilia. That much we know now. Cute. Bob vows to beat the charges in court. Of course he did. (laughs) Claims he never hurt any of those women. His unhinged quote to the arresting detective, a psychiatrist will back me up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The evidence isn't looking too great for Bob, though. His fingerprints are recovered from one of the victims in the woods. And in fact, they discover a rope with a slipknot in Bob's possession at the time of his arrest. So how many meters long was that? <laughs> After all this, Bob decides to represent himself because, well, you know, why the hell not? He has total control over this, he has proved. He had shouted in court as a hearing got underway. I'll walk out of those doors in 80 days, not guilty. Things seem to be going just like perfectly. Just as planned, right, Bob? Just as planned. What a nutball. Why would you point the finger at your, why would you say your own name? Why would you do that? Well, that's a good question, I think. Um, why does he do all this? You really, I, I, I can't say this enough. And I think people really underestimate how a sociopath thinks because he believes that people are going to believe him. That's how his mind works. He believes I'm smarter than everybody. I can, I got this. I can charm them. I can walk into the police station. I can do all this and everybody's going to believe me because you know what? I'm smarter than everybody else. But my question is, if you're calling in and you're pointing the finger at somebody, why isn't it Frank down the street? Like, why are you... As the anonymous tipster, why are you saying your own name? He thinks he can barter immunity out of it all. That mm. that was his that was his whole thing. Yeah. I can barter immunity out of this all. And you know what? I'm in the clear. That's how his mind is working. You know, his mind isn't working like our minds, like, oh, I need a cup of coffee right now, or oh, right now we're gonna log off and we're gonna go do our next job. His mind doesn't work analytically like that. He's sort of overthinking things. In his own in his own sociopathic way, yeah. 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 He yeah. he he well, he thinks he has all things thought out. Yeah. You know. Right. He he thinks he's answered every question and now I can make the call, which is which those types of psychopaths and sociopaths cops love because they're going to get caught. Right. It's the guys who <laughs> are smart a little bit smarter who realize, "No, I'm not going to involve the police." You know? Yeah. Bob Mori, a serial killer, is eventually convicted and sentenced to death. The room he now lives in is located on the infamous San Quentin Death Row in California. It is not 
a poshy little room in someone's house up in Reading. Police believe Bob can be connected to several other missing and murdered women in the Reading area. How many would be a guess. He stopped talking about them once he couldn't turn a profit. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And I just want to say I'm humbled and I'm very grateful for all of you tuning in each week. Until next time, be safe, be aware. Sources for today's episode come from People v. Mori, Supreme Court of California, April 24th, 2003. Tipster Killer, the California serial killer who kept calling in tips for his own murders. SFGate.com, Katie Dowd, July 4th, 2022. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.